Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. My name is Matt, and uh, just so glad you're here this morning as uh, we're kicking or continuing in this series, outdated, looking at some things that really should never be resurrected again, uh, and including those dance moves. But uh, see, there's some things that churches have done, which we're glad that they're in the past, but there's some things that churches and Christians believe that we're glad aren't in the past, right? And so that's what we're looking at this series are um, some beliefs and some ideas that um, the world and the people around us and culture may call outdated, um, but Christ calls them very relevant and the Word of God calls them relevant. So that's what we're looking at this week. Uh, if you missed any of the previous series, you can jump online. We handled some, some harder topics the last couple of weeks, and we're going to handle another one this week as we get ready uh, for Easter. But this Sunday, if you're not familiar with the church calendar is Palm Sunday, uh, which means this is the Sunday where we celebrate historically that Jesus made his entrance into Jerusalem on his way to be uh, crucified. And so uh, essentially what this week represents for us is the preparation of Jesus to go to the cross. You see, he came in and there was a, a group that thought he was coming in as king because these Old Testament prophecies talked about this Messiah that was coming and there was this buzz around Jesus that he was the, the coming savior of the Jewish people. And so a group of people came out to meet Jesus as he came in to welcome their king as they would welcome a conquering king into uh, their city. But he didn't come in like a normal king with great pomp and circumstance. Instead, he came in with great humility. They came in on a donkey and not everybody noticed and much of the city didn't even care. And many of these people who uh, worshiped him on the way in were the exact crowd that ended up putting him on the cross a few days later. And so uh, while we see this uh, entry of Jesus, it points us to the next time we see Jesus riding a horse or a donkey is a very different entrance. We see him come, on, come in now, not for a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns and not for a throne, but for a cross. And the next time we see Jesus, he's coming on a war horse, coming for a crown, coming for his rightful place as king. And so we're, we're going to talk today about that second triumphant return, which will be much different than the first uh, entrance of Jesus. And so uh, we're going to get into that conversation today. But um, every time we talk about uh, the, the return of Jesus, which would, uh, according to what we understand in the Bible, begin the end of this age as we know it, and the end of the world, if you will call that, it evokes a whole ton of emotions in us, right? When you hear the end of the world, maybe you begin to be fearful. Maybe you begin to worry. Maybe there's a lot of confusion and doubt. Uh, maybe you grow indignant at the idea and just begin to push back against the whole thing. Maybe you think of the awful book series called Left Behind. Nobody understands that book. That's okay. That's fine. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you are blessed. Anyway, maybe you think of Tom Cruise and War of the Worlds. You think of Armageddon and Bruce Willis. See, but what's interesting about all of these end-of-the-world movies, or most of these end-of-these-world movies, is that we win in the end. Well, the scriptures paint a picture that is, yes, true, some win and others don't win. There's a lot of confusion around this conversation at the end of the world, a lot of debate even in Christian circles. It's perhaps one of the most debated topics. But here's one thing all Christians agree on. Jesus is coming back. The timeline of that, what it looks like, uh, exactly. There's, there's lots of open conversation about that, but we do know is he is returning. And so what we're going to look at today is Jesus explaining to his disciples what that return is going uh, to look like. And, and it's interesting, as he tells this, he does it to evoke a certain emotion in his disciples, and I would say a certain emotion in us. And the emotion he's seeking to evoke is very different than the one that the world would try to get out of us as we have this conversation. So we're going to look at that today. How are we to respond to it? So um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn 
turn with me to Matthew 24. I want you to see that I'm not making this up, that this is the words of Jesus. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to put one in your hands back at the Welcome Center. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. But for those of you who are here today and have no idea um, what I just said, and don't, can't make any sense of what I just said, let me, let me explain what the scriptures make uh, clear to us. When Jesus came, he came and, and went to the cross, which means he paid for our sin. He paid the debt that we owed so that we could be uh, free from sin and be given eternal life in him. And he made a promise after he resurrected from the grave, which we're going to celebrate next week. He made a promise to his disciples. He said, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to heaven, but I'm going to come back and get you, and I'm going to bring you to the Father, meaning uh, I will ultimately rescue you from pain, sorrow, suffering, and you get an eternity of goodness with God, right? That's the idea that we're talking about. Now, there are those who have already passed who get to enjoy that goodness of God's, of being in God's presence, but he is coming back. And so if you don't know what we're talking about, that's what we're talking about, the promise of Jesus to come back for those who put faith in him. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Let's see how Jesus explains this. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when the disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked, Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus walking around uh, the temple, and this conversation gets sparked. And basically there's two questions that um, the disciples ask you. The first question they ask is, when is this temple going to be destroyed? Like you just predicted. Second question, um, what does the end of the world look like? Help us understand that. So to give you some context of what they're talking about, this is a artist rendition of the temple that they would have been near. This is the temple that King Herod primarily built. King Herod, the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus as he was a baby, um, spent uh, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in their day to make this temple. This was a temple to God where they would um, sacrifice according to the Old Testament law, Old Testament covenant. This thing was impressive. All right, this complex was about 30 football fields. Uh, the walls are lined with gold. It's incredibly uh, ornate. This wall is huge. So you can imagine the disciples coming up to this. It's like you seeing the most impressive building you've ever seen. And you walk away and you go, wow, wasn't that cool? And Jesus turns around and he looks at this magnificent thing and says, it won't last. Not one stone of this thing is going to remain. And it's interesting. He says the, the greatest achievement man has ever made in their attempts won't last. This is with the largest structure that was in Israel up until modern days. And it begins to spark this conversation for um, the, the disciples because it took 80 years to build this thing. And it didn't last super long after it was built. Um, what happened was Jesus's words came true. He predicted the destruction of this temple. And uh, in about 40 years later, in AD 70, General Titus of the, the Roman uh, Empire came in and he was attacking the Jews and he ended up killing 1.1 million Jews because they were rebelling against the Roman Empire. And he just began to squash the rebellion until they all retreated into the temple. <clears throat> and while they were hiding in the temple, they basically surrounded them and they attacked the temple. They won. And then he fulfilled God's prophecy <laughs> and destroyed the entire temple. So you may have seen pictures of the Wailing Wall uh, in Jerusalem. What that is, is a portion of the lower foundation of the wall. That, that's all that remains. It's not, it doesn't even really come up here much at all. It is tiny compared to the magnificence. And that made the disciples go, wait a minute. <laughs> if, if you're going to do that, what does the end of the age look like? And that's what we're going to look at 
today. We're going to look at it in three categories. What, what are the signs of uh, the end times? What, is it, what are the characteristics of it? What will it be like? And then how are we to respond to it? So let's ask the first question. What are the signs of Jesus' return according to what he says in Matthew chapter 24? Let's look at verse 4 together. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You should know, we're just going to kind of read a verse or two at a time and talk about it. You should know that before Jesus even begins this conversation, he gives a warning. He says, watch out. Many are going to try to deceive you. As you talk about the end times, as you think about the end times, as you hear about the end times, he says, watch out. Because there is a ton of deception around this. And can I urge you as your pastor and for those of you visiting, YouTube and Facebook are not great sources for end times information. (laughs) All right? I don't want any links. In my email, I'll just mark it as spam, all right, if it comes in. But listen to this teacher. No, 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 listen. The majority, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go heavy and say 90% of people talking about the end times are missing what Scripture is saying. They are not accurately interpreting it. They are interpreting it for financial gain because nothing gets people to buy more things and do more ridiculous stuff than fear. And so twisted men, according to this verse, have leveraged that to leverage financial gain over people. So just... If you want to know more, there's a few sources we'd love to send you and and get some good information in your hands on this. But Jesus warns them so clearly. He says, there will be people, so watch out. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. And even if you haven't been around the Bible a lot, you've probably heard these verses when we talk about the end times or talk about Jesus returning and, you know, there's wars and there's wars everywhere and nation against nation. And is this the signs of the times, right? Like that's the the question we hear a lot. And and I want to draw your attention to some information that people have been saying that for a very long time, right? Before World War I, you know what they said? Are these the signs of the time? Well, World War I came and went and Here we are. Jesus hasn't returned. World War II, you know what they said? Are these the signs of the times, right? You know what the media is saying now? Are these the signs of what the times, right? It's just this perpetual cycle. It's because of a misreading of what Jesus just said. He said, you will hear about all of these wars, but these are not it. These are just the beginning of the birth pains. It's just getting Started. And so I want to draw your attention to some information. The Poly National War Memorial is a website that talks about um, kind of the wars and, and all of that data. But there, is, um, there was, in the last 100 years, this is just 100 years, not talking about the wars previously, 163 wars that killed about a, in the thousands. There's 14 wars that killed in the hundreds of thousands. And there's four to five wars that killed uh, in the millions. That would be World War II, Chinese Revolution, the Russian Revolution, Vietnam. And if you add the last five years of Afghanistan, you're probably uh, right around in the millions for Afghanistan over the total war there. What I want you to see is the millions of people that have been lost in wars, and, and that's horrific, and bring it into the context of what we're seeing today. Here's 20... 2020 to 2021 uh, numbers. These are combat uh, losses from wars around the world. 40,000 in Afghanistan, 30,000 in Yemen, and this war is getting super ugly. Um, These two are fought by children a lot. Um, Ethiopia, 20,000. Myanmar is 11,000. These were combat deaths, which doesn't include civilian deaths, which are actually much higher. 
It's really hard to get accurate numbers in the Russian-Ukraine conflict right now um, because of political spin, but it's somewhere in the three to 4,000 range is kind of a, a conservative number. Now, why do I say that? Because there have been, over the last four months, last six months, opportunities for people to come in and hit the panic button and get people freaked out because they don't read what Jesus said. You will hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. The emotion, and this is, if you hear nothing today, hear this. The emotion Jesus intended to evoke in his disciples and in his followers when he talked about the end times was not fear and panic, but faith and peace. Because what he wanted was for us to say that all of these things were happening just as God predicted. So when I look at the uncertain future, I know my God's already there. I know he's already conquered this. He's already covered this. This is all part of his plan. He sees it all. Therefore, I can rest because I fit in the middle of his plan. I'm in the palm of his hand. I don't have to be alarmed because God's got this under control. Do you hear that? For the Christian, the talk of the return of Jesus is meant to be faith and peace, not fear and panic. Then he's going to go on to kind of list some things um, that you can see as um, signs of the ends, and we'll talk about whether we think those are fulfilled or not, and you can decide for yourself. Verse 9, then you will be handed over to the persecuted, over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Jesus says there'll be incredible persecution um, on those who follow the name of Christ in the end times. Now, the question to ask is, is this fulfilled? Is this happening or not? Uh, well, let me ask you this. Um, in order to hate somebody, you have to know somebody, correct? You can't hate somebody you don't know exists. Well, there are still plenty of people groups and nations that don't even know Jesus exists. We call them unreached people groups who've never heard the name of Jesus, never heard about the Bible, never heard about God, Zero context for any of that. Well, they can't hate somebody they don't know. So is it, I don't know, I would say it's probably partially fulfilled because there's still a bunch of people who don't know Jesus to even hate them. But what I want to stress on this is this is a reality for a majority of the world. There are few of us Christians who get to enjoy a life without persecution. Now you may say, well, I get picked on. I get called Jesus boy at church or, you know, goody two-shoe. Okay, you're welcome. That's a compliment. It means you're living a life that's admirable. It's not persecution. What people around the world are facing is dire. And there was actually an article listed on Forbes, but the, all the information came from Open Door International, which is a great resource to, to talk about the persecuted church. But they said there's over 309 million Christians who every day live in a high level of persecution for their faith. And uh, these are some of the, the statistics over just the last year, so every year, 4,700 Christians are killed for their faith. 4,400 churches or tr Christian buildings were attacked. 4,200 uh, Christians were unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned. And 1,700 Christians were abducted for faith-related reasons. For those of us who enjoy our comfy chairs and our AC, which we are, or heat, depending on the time of year, mostly heat, I guess, um, we are incredibly grateful for the freedom we have to worship our Lord and Savior. But that's not true for everybody else. In North Korea, the most dangerous place to be a Christian, there's estimations that there's around 50 to 70,000 Christians imprisoned for their faith. To be a Christian in North Korea is a death sentence. 
It's becoming that in China. Uh, there's concentration camps everywhere. And, and again, I'm not saying this to cause fear. I'm saying this to real, for you to see the weight of being a Christian in the world. It's not a social club. It's not just something that's fun. It's because it's life and death and eternity at stake. And people are willing to give up their life here because they're so confident in what they get in a life to come. But their motivations are very, very clear. And as those who get to enjoy the luxury of being here, we ought to be praying for them. We ought to be consistently praying for believers who are in a different plight. And COVID actually made this significantly worse in nations where resources are hard to get because in food distribution situations, they would stop giving food to people they knew who were Christians. But like, you're not worried about not getting a paycheck tomorrow because you're a Christian. But for, for many people, they're worried about even getting dinner because people found out that they are a Christian. And so let's be in consistent prayer for them. And specifically because of what Jesus says next, we ought to be praying for ourselves as well. Verse 10, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. What Jesus is saying is that the pressure of persecution is going to reveal the motivations of why you came towards Jesus in the first place. If you came to Jesus for health, wealth, and prosperity and a good life here and now, persecution is going to feel like Jesus betrayed you. But if you came to Jesus because you knew that you needed salvation from your sin and you needed a rescue from this life and you know you get an eternity in heaven, persecution all of a sudden fits within that. And so he says what happens is persecution is going to reveal the motivations of why people are pursuing Jesus. Are they in it because he really is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he will come back and every knee will bow before him? Are we in it because this is fun and it made me feel good for a season? Right? He says, the end will reveal our motivations. Verse 11. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. I would say the last two very clearly are fulfilled. Or at least we're seeing them in, in a pretty significant amount of fulfillment. Many prophets will appear. Right? Like If you look across the landscape of the world, there was 1.9 billion people who follow the teachings of the false prophet Muhammad who claims to have a different way to get to God. There's one point, or 16 million who follow the teachings of the false prophet Joseph Smith, who claimed to be a Messiah or know the way to God apart from Jesus. And you may not know this one, but it's, uh, this guy's name is Felix Manalo. He's the, in charge of this church, Iglesia de Cristo, uh, which is a huge, huge cult in the Philippines of about 20 million people. Um, in my time in the Philippines, I was traveling around, and all of the churches are built like rocket ships, because he's taught that unless you're in one of his church buildings, when um, basically he decides you're going home because he thinks he's God incarnate, unless you're in one of the rocket ship churches, you're not making it, right? How did they get there? Because they didn't read scriptures for themselves. Because they didn't know the word of God on their own. Verse 12. But of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will go cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this is the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of, excuse me, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus gets through some super downer verses, <laughs> feeling real sorry about being a Christian at this point, right? And then he says, but, but Jesus is coming back. Those who stand firm to the end will be saved. They get rescue from sin, from sorrow, from suffering, and get an eternity of peace, joy, and ultimate satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone. So he ends and says, don't worry. For those whose faith is in Jesus, the good news is coming. But you also, in the next verse here, in verse 14, get a window as to his patience. You see that Jesus came at the cross 
could have ended things then, but went back to the Father out of great patience that many, that all, would have the opportunity to hear the good news about Jesus. You see it, what he says right here? The gospel will be preached in the whole world. You see, God's patience in waiting that we, as his salt and light in the world, would get the good news of Jesus as, as the only Savior to all nations. And then he'll come back. His patience that all would have the opportunity to repent. Now the question is, is this fulfilled or not? It depends how you define nations. If you define nations as uh, political environments, then yes, every nation does have access to the gospel. If you define it as distinct people groups, then not everybody has access to the gospel. But interestingly enough, in the next three years, they project that um, you will have access to the, the gospel message in every language in the next three years. Does that mean Jesus is coming back in three years? I sure hope so, but I sure don't know. But you need to catch this. If you walk out of here and miss God's patience, you will misunderstand his mercy. His mercy is that we would get busy letting many people know about the good news that is in Jesus. So the next question I want to ask is, what, what will characterize it? What will it feel like? What will it look like? Uh, those kind of questions. Let's look at the first one here. It will be obvious. It will not be hard to figure out. Uh, there's a lot of cryptic, weird language around this, and Jesus makes it very plain. It will be so obvious. Matthew chapter 24, verse 33. Uh, yeah, 30, 23, excuse me, 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect or even Christians. See, I have told you ahead of time. Do you see that? I'm preparing you for what's coming so you're not alarmed. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east is visible even in the west. He says, there's no doubt that you will see very clearly Christ has returned. It will be obvious. It will not be secretive. The whole world will know when Christ has returned. And this is really important because even in the New Testament, in the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, you see a group of believers who, who were uh, duped into thinking that they missed the resurrection. That it already happened. And so they basically just quit living life, just decided to be couch potatoes because we missed the boat. And Paul comes in and says, no, you didn't miss it, right? It will be so obvious that you don't have to worry about did we miss it? All right, it's super obvious. Here, here's the next thing that will characterize it. It will be met with mixed emotions. It will feel very different for different people. 24 verse 30. Then will appear the signs of the Son of Man in heaven, being Jesus, and then all peoples on the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. I want to pause right there. Why are they weeping? Why are they mourning? Because they understand that Jesus is not coming back on a donkey. He's coming back on a war horse. And he's coming to finally put an end to the war on sin, the war on sorrow, the war on suffering, the war on Satan, to squash that. And there will be people who would rather align themselves with death and darkness than with light and God. And God is coming back to judge sin and this is the distinction of this conversation where you see Jesus set up these two responses to this. He says, there will be those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus who will see my end has come. Or you will see in verse 31, 
and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect, or he will gather those who put their faith in him from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. The return of Jesus is the day of reckoning, where those who have put their faith in Jesus say, as their Lord and Savior, find freedom and life and love for eternity. And those who refuse find not the judgment cast on Jesus, which is what Christians experience, but the judgment of their sin brought on themselves. It's interesting as I listen to this and as I read this, that someone, and I know I have been there in my life before coming to Jesus, would rather take the judgment for their own sin than somebody else pay the bill, simply because of pride. And the message of the gospel is somebody already paid your bill if you would just accept it. I want to give you an opportunity later to respond to that, but what we'll keep going here. The third thing about, um, that will characterize it is that it will be at an unknown time. We don't, we don't know. There's a lot of people who say they know. We just don't know. Why? Because of what Jesus says in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of the Man. Excuse me. Coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. He says, nobody knows. And you're going to find a lot of people who are going to tell you they know. And there's endless calculations, endless um, ideas of where this ends. Like anybody ever seen one of those vans that says, Jesus is coming, are you ready? And it's got like a date on there. And you're looking at the van and then you look at your calendar and you go, well, that was two weeks ago. <laughs> What's that say about me, right? As they drive home, like it, there's countless predictions. There's one out there that says actually next year is the year that Jesus returns. And here's what I want to say to you, what Jesus says. Therefore, if even the angels in heaven nor the Son knows, but only the Father. Listen, according to this, if the angels know and Jesus don't know, Dr. Doom with his PhD in fear-mongering doesn't know. Stop. Why do we want to know? Because of uncertainty, because we want to be ready. Okay, great. Jesus says you should be ready all the time. Jesus says you shouldn't wait till 2023 when the side of the van tells you he's coming back. He says we should be in that position of being ready all the time. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 42. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus uses this idea of someone protecting what is incredibly important, right? Like if you knew somebody was going to come break into your house at 12.01 p.m., you'd be ready at 12.01 p.m. to stop them. And Jesus says, in the same way that you would protect the physical things that are important to you, I, I'm not so concerned that you protect those physical things. He's concerned that you would protect the spiritual things, that you spiritually would be ready for the enemy to come into your room, that you spiritually would be ready at any point that when Jesus comes back, you go, I was waiting for you. I was ready for you. Which begs the question, are there things in our life that frankly, if Jesus showed up today, we'd have a hard time hiding them. We'd have a hard time looking Jesus in the eye because we weren't ready. 
because there's things spiritually that we've let go. There's things spiritually we've let locks. There's, there's areas of sin in our life that we just, and Jesus says, be ready. Which leads us to our question. How are we to respond to this? How should we then live? If, if Jesus is coming back and we don't know when he's coming back, it's what I just said. Simply be ready. You go, thanks, Matt. It's groundbreaking. Really appreciated that insight right there. I think we overcomplicate this thing. I think we overcomplicate it greatly, and I think there's just two pieces to it. If you're going to be ready, the first thing is that you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It is the deciding factor on that day what happens in your life. It is the deciding factor when you breathe your last breath of life here is based on what you did with the gift of Jesus. Not what you did to earn the gift of Jesus because there's nothing you could earn. It's what you did in response to the free gift of salvation that Christ paid your debt and he paid my debt. And what we're gonna celebrate next week is that he defeated death for you so you don't have to. The question is, have you done that? See, believing in him isn't enough. Even the demons believe in God. The difference is accepting him as a replacement for you because you belonged on that cross next week, not, not him. But he went there willingly for you and we would stop and say, all right, God, I'm done, I'm done being king of my own life. I'm done sitting on the throne of my own life. I'm gonna get off. I'm gonna accept your forgiveness. I'm gonna accept your salvation. And what that means then is an eternity free from sin, sorrow, and suffering in a place of eternal hope and peace. The question is, have you done that? give you some time later to respond to that. The second question, or the second thing of being ready is very similar. Just live like Jesus is your Lord and Savior. If it's true that he is, then your life ought to match that. And what that means to live like our Lord and Savior, to live like Jesus, means to have your life look like Jesus. It's not complicated. It's to be self-sacrificial, it's to be others-focused, it's to be generous, it's to be sharing the good news of Jesus, it's to not make yourself more significant than others. It's quite simple. And if we take a page out of Jesus's book, in the last week that he was here, before he was uh, persecuted, what you see is our, our Savior moving not towards self-preservation, but self-sacrifice. Not towards power, but towards surrender. Not towards um, self-exaltation, but the exaltation of his father. And if that was a marker of our life, that we lived a life of self-sacrifice, we lived a life that looked like Jesus in his last life, that moved towards self-surrender for the glory of God and the good of others, you would be ready. And frankly, a lot of people around us would be ready too because they would have heard the good news of Jesus from us. We, we like to make it complicated, but it's really quite simple. Jesus is coming, and until then, we are to be a light that looks like Jesus to as many people as possible. See, we're going to celebrate communion here in a few minutes, but I want to explain what communion means to you and why it was given to us. And the last night that Jesus was with his disciples before he went to the cross, he gave them something to remember uh, why he was going to the cross. And it was that he was taking their punishment. He was taking their pain. He was covering their sins, that they might be given new life. And what's interesting is when the Apostle Paul reflects on this, and he talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, one of the last things he says about it is we do this until Jesus returns. We proclaim his death until he returns, that it's really an act of faith. That I believe that not only did Jesus die for my sins and pay for them, I believe he's coming back for me. And I believe he's coming back for those who put their hope in him. Communion is that reminder. So we're going to partake in a few minutes, but, but I want to give you a chance to respond 
to that. We're gonna, we're gonna ask a couple questions here. For those of you who haven't put your faith in, in Jesus, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that. We're gonna pray in a few minutes here, but, but I want you to consider the question, what has been your hesitation? Why haven't you up to this point? The next question I wanna ask is if you are a believer, you have put your faith in him, are you ready? Does your life look like you would want it to look like for Jesus to come back into the house? You know, it's like when um, you were a kid and your, your parents left and you were given a chore and your sibling was given a chore and you faithfully did your chore and your other sibling did none of it. You have very different responses to your parent coming back home. That's kind of what we wanna talk about today. Is your, play, your life in a place that you say, you know what, there's nothing I'm hiding, there's nothing I'm afraid of Jesus finding out. I've laid it all out before him. Communion is an opportunity to examine our hearts and say, God, are you uh, revealing something that is in the way? So I'm going to give you a few minutes. Go ahead and just spend some time praying with the Lord. If you don't know the Lord and haven't accepted that, I'm going to give you a chance to respond in a minute here. bowed and every eye closed in this room. If, if you're here today and you've never accepted the free gift of salvation, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. You can pray a prayer along with me. You can use your own words. You can um, just pray, pray out to Jesus. And it sounds something like this. Dear God, I come before you and today I acknowledge my sin. I've made decisions and choices that aren't honoring to you and have hurt others. And today I repent of that. Today I acknowledge that you are my savior and my forgiver. Today I get off the throne of my life and Jesus, I place you on it. I ask that you would forgive me for my sin, that you would save me and that I would spend an eternity with you. In Jesus' name, with every head bowed and every eye closed. If that's you today, and feel the Lord moving and you wanna respond to that. You can fill out the communication card in front of you and we'll be in touch with you or come and find me or find somebody afterwards. And we'd love to have a conversation with you. Jesus, as we come to you and we, we celebrate communion here in a few moments, I, I pray that we would all with great wonder and great, great worship of you, acknowledge who you are in our life and put you in the rightful place. As we partake of this, God, I pray that you would bless it. On the night Jesus was with his disciples, he took the bread and as a symbol of what he was about to do the next day, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way he took the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of my new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. And as I said, Paul finishes this section in verse 26 by saying this. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you came the first time, that you came to deal with our sin. You came to deal with our, our messed up situations, God. You didn't leave us in it. We thank you that you gave your life for us. And God, we thank you that you're coming back. We, we sit with expectation and waiting for you to bring us home to you, God. But in the meantime, we know we have work to do. There are nations and there are people who don't yet even know your name, let alone believe in you. God, let us be a church. Let us be a people who are ready, who are working, who you find faithful when you return. We pray these things in Jesus' name.